Hello, hello, and welcome to Philosophy Mixed, the Texas State Philosophy Department podcast series on philosophy and the nature of things. My name is Rebecca Farinas, and I'm on faculty in the philosophy department at Texas State University. I want to welcome you to the new program that highlights the ongoing philosophy dialogue series, and we're happy to be able to collaborate with Professor Craig Hanks, the head of the philosophy department, and Joanne Carson, who who's with us today, who, along with Vince Luigi, developed the dialogue series over 22 years ago. This is our third session of Philosophy Mixed, our first being Race and Identity in the 21st Century, and then a special session on Body and Culture. I think the sessions so far have been fun and lively. One of our goals is to present many sides of the nature of things, so our interdisciplinary approach will help us to continue our exploration today. Before we start today's session on free speech and deliberative dialogue, I would like to quote Michel Foucault on the nature of ideas and activism with which free speech is a form. Foucault said in an interview in 1991, quote, There are many ideas on earth than intellectuals imagine, and these ideas are more active, stronger, more resistant, more passionate than politicians think. We have to be there at the birth of ideas, the bursting forth of their force, not in books expressing them, but in events manifesting this force, in struggles carried on around ideas, for or against them. Ideas do not rule the world. But it is because the world has ideas and because it constantly produces them that it is not passively ruled by those who are its leaders or those who would like to teach it once and for all what it must think. So that brings us to our topic today, which is free speech and deliberative dialogue, which might seem a bit of a paradox. And that's why we've brought in an expert on deliberative dialogue, who's also um, been active yesterday in the dialogue series and um, had a special session yesterday at the San Marcos Public Library on deliberative dialogue. He's also speaking today um, in classroom settings on campus I'd like to introduce you to Jay Tice, who's a professor at Lone Star College. Professor Tice, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. Before we start, how did the sessions go yesterday? Um, I always think the things I do go well. You'd have to ask uh, Joanne or some of the students, but I think it went pretty well. Great, good. So there was a real engagement, and everyone was brought back everyone was brought on to common platforms. Is that part of your... Yeah, I mean, I thought they thought about the issues we were dealing with. I had a number of students come up to me afterwards to talk with me about what we had discussed. Um, I think some of them were on the left and some of them were on the right. So I consider that a success. Great. And we have Joanne Carson here who invited uh, Professor Tice to... to participate with the Philosophy Dialogue series. How do you think it went yesterday, Professor Carson? Oh, well, I would strongly concur with uh, Professor Tice. It was extremely positive. 
students were very engaged, and I think it was eye-opening for them to see uh, that there are forms of discourse that we can engage in as human beings that don't require us to divide into us versus them kinds of thinking and help us to see the alternative viewpoints that others may have uh, respectfully without demonizing those views. Uh, I think that's something we certainly need to practice uh, more of on campuses and in the society at large. Well, that's exactly why we thought that this topic would be so timely, and we're so happy that you're able to come in and give us some of your insights today. It brings us really to our first question, which is about free speech, because we're thinking about the difference between free speech that's kind of explosive and emotional and deliberative dialogue. So I'd like to ask both of you a question about some of the events that are surrounding free speech in the public square in our country today. Free speech is sometimes thought of as a liberal value. Does the controversy of Ann Coulter and the backlash against her events on campuses like University of California in Berkeley further free speech as a universal and personal value or diminish such freedoms? Well, um, so I've never seen free speech as a liberal value. I mean, I think right now the people that are talking most about it tend to be conservatives, whether it's fire or I know on my own campus it's the conservative faculty that are most concerned about things like regulating microaggressions and hate speech. Um, what are microaggressions? Can uh, you explain that? Well, I'm really not an expert on microaggressions, but there are ways in which people make those that are different feel uncomfortable, um, that are not overtly hateful, but are not accepting. Um, that's sort of how I would describe it. So there's subtle things, um, but they're increasingly being talked about on the left in academia. So I think there's, there's people on both sides that are concerned about this. I think part of the problem we have, you know, Charles Murray was shouted down at Middlebury. Um, we've had Richard Spencer yes. going to colleges and getting a lot of flack. Ann Coulter's just the latest in a long line of these. Um, so, I mean, I think in the end, good ideas will win out and we have nothing to fear by having people spout bad ideas. And in some sense, if we don't like what they're saying, don't go or go and engage them and talk with them about where their ideas come from and why they believe the way they do. Uh, I think it's very dangerous that the left is setting a precedent that there are certain ideas we're not going to listen to. Yeah, that's, um, I think, an important um, aspect to keep in mind, uh, that uh, there's so um, to leave room, though, for that dialogue in more sensational kind of settings of um, people coming to speak to audiences. I think maybe we'll 
talk a little bit more specifically about that in our second question. And Professor Carson, uh, do you think of free speech as a real universal value, or do you think it's something carried on most actively by a liberal section of uh, society? Oh, well, I adamantly think of it as a, well, I, I would like to say it's a human value. It's not liberal or conservative. Um, speech is special uh, from a philosophical standpoint. It's, it's part of what makes us human. Um, you know, Aristotle uh, said that we're rational animals, and really what he was referring to was we're animals who are able to use language, and the way we do that is through speech, and that's how you we convey our ideas. You started with a quote uh, about ideas, um, and uh, I think it's important to realize that, that people who think about all talk and no action, for example, are, are, are making a false dichotomy because speech talking is a form of action, and it's a very important form of action that conveys ideas into the world. That's how ideas get into the world. Uh, now, there are other more... Uh, there are other forms of action that involve, you know, physical aggression and that sort of thing. So I, I don't, I'm not a free speech absolutist in the sense that I think just absolutely anything goes. But I think we should be very careful where we put those kinds of qualifications. Um, you know, one of the champions of free speech, Don Stuart Mill, in in On Liberty, uh, was a, a proponent of letting all ideas be aired with the idea that if you have a marketplace of ideas, you let the bad ideas be aired, uh, and you're much more likely to arrive or at least get closer to the truth, and also to remember that we're all fallible. Uh, so we might learn something from somebody who, who is disagreeing with us, and we might be able to revise our own views um, in a way that makes them uh, better. So I think we should be extremely... Uh, careful, uh, and I, I do have concerns um, about the climate of refusing to let people speech uh, speak with whom you disagree. Now, I have great sympathy for people who have to make decisions about the safety of students and that sort of thing. Um, but it, it seems to me that it it would only be in cases where, to borrow a little bit from the Supreme Court, uh, there's an imminent threat of some kind of physical harm or violence, that it has to be pronounced and there must be strong evidence for it. Uh, banning that, I think it's a, a sort of a lazy uh, attitude to refuse to listen to people whose ideas you find repugnant and hateful because uh, it it's, uh, takes some effort to try to uh, come up with reasons for why those viewpoints are mistaken. And so it's much easier to stay in your comfort zone. And I think we all need to get out of our comfort zone a little bit. Uh, those are both such uh, interesting insights to really think and ponder about um, free speech as a human value uh, that has a real praxis, real practical uh, results in our societies. I think that's um, something that we really all need to keep in mind how important free speech is. To move on to our second question, um, 
we were thinking about that limitation of free speech and how that has really reared its head in a sense of security, public health, and the ramifications of what can become, in a sense, hate speech. And that brings us to the second question that um, we had thought would possibly be um, um, interesting to you. Free speech on campus has also been an issue here at Texas State University. As you know, the flyers, banners, and posters around campus which promote a white supremacy movement have been denounced by the administration, faculty, and students. However, is there an argument to be made that they are a form of free speech? Do you have any ideas on that, Professor Tice or Professor Carson? Well... So I was reading the San Marcos paper yesterday when I was in town and read about those things. Um, that's a very difficult question. Uh, I would tend towards the answer that it is free speech, and the way you defeat speech is with more speech. Um, I find the views important. But I don't know, I, I think part of what college is about is challenging our preconceptions and challenging our beliefs. I think if you go to college and are never offended by anything, you didn't get much for your money. You've got to think about who you are and why you are and what you believe. And sometimes that takes challenging what you believe. Uh, sometimes in, in ways that we find uncomfortable. So I think those those views are problematic but need to be dealt with by challenging their views. And I think also there's sometimes people feel free to take more offensive views when they can do it anonymously. And I think that would be my concern in this case that if it is free speech, you have to have some responsibility for what you are saying and be willing to engage with people that disagree with you, not anonymously post things that offend. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I think some of the postings have um, been, in a way, an incitement to violence. So would that be a limitation in your estimation? Well, I think if they, say, go out and beat up people, then, yeah, that goes beyond just speech. Mm -hmm. Beyond challenging other people ideas. to present their ideas. That's fascinating. Professor Carson, um, do you have some views on uh, limiting um, a free speech, even if it's offensive to certain groups here on campus? Well, I, I would like to start by going back to the, the beginning of, of speech as a, as a human value. And um, it's very closely tied to the, um, the term logos, uh, which is a Greek term, which has multiple meanings. It means reason, it means speech, it means order. It has all of those connotations packed into it. So there's a connection, a close connection, between speech, which is rational, which, which is based on reasons, and that which is irrational. Um, 
uh, Professor Tice can probably say a little bit more about that uh, later in regard to what deliberative dialogue is, but I, I would like to say that um, um, a lot of, I think, what we're seeing is sort of irrational venting that, that is not grounded in reason and you know it needs to be to be challenged but rather than return hate with hate uh, or or hate with uh, uh, repression we should be finding out what these people are hating I mean what what is bothering them to get into some sort of a conversation and find out the roots of their problem because that puts it, it really shows a little bit of respect even to people that you that you find repulsive they're human and they're capable of rational thought so let's find out what's creating this and, and get into some sort of a dialogue uh, for example you know the shouting matches that we have here at Texas State over at the stallions which is the so-called free speech zone uh, is is really kind of a farce. <laughs> I'm not saying that the, they should not be allowed. Um, I'm not saying that, but I'm saying it's not really um, a type of discourse in which people are entering into some sort of a rational conversation, and that's why we try to m- model over in the philosophy dialogue room with our with our dialogue series where we can. Uh, uh, air our disagreements and try to support them in a rational way. Um, I also don't want to be thought to be saying that that humans are just purely rational. I mean, we're not Doctor Spock by any means. You know, the Vulcan <laughs> logic person. We're uh, we're people that have emotions, and I think that that is also connected with reason. I don't think that we should make a dichotomy. But if someone is really angry. Uh, they're angry about something. So you see, it's not just a free-floating rage. There's some sort of cognitive component to that. And it would behoove us to try to start investigating you know, what that cognitive component is and bring them into the arena of free, free speech. Yes, uh, I, I, go ahead, Professor Tice. What I have to say is that people are complex beings. Things are not simply black and white. And too often in our society, we paint things as black and white. There's this Manichaean mindset out there. It's reinforced in our political system. It's reinforced in our foreign policy. It's reinforced throughout our society. You're either with us or you're against us. And I don't think that is the natural state of people. We are much more complex, much more nuanced. There's a lot more gray in between the small areas of black and white, and we're conflicted about things. And the only way we deal with that is by having reasonable conversations and by listening to people that disagree with us. And too often, when we have political discourse, there's no listening going on in a lot of talking. Uh, yeah, I think that's such an inc- important aspect. And I, I know um, Michel Foucault in Self-Government talks about a place of assembly, a place where both sides can feel safe uh, to be able to open up to the other. And um, contemporary philosophers are often changing the model of assembly to where there's not a leader speaker and there's a truly uh, democratic 
platform, a pluralistic platform of voices. So I'm especially interested in your work, Professor Tice, uh, because you seem to set up a model that seems so incredibly interpersonal, yet retains a, a, a semblance of um, um, allowing that rational respect to come on board without it being a debate or a polemic. And I think that draws us into our third question. Um, how can deliberative dialogue be a part of the emerging political and social event, which might be controversial and emotionally charged? In other words, deliberative dialogue seems a method for conferences, think tanks, classrooms, and meetings. So how do highly charged opinions and arguments fit with deliberative dialogue? Well, so for listeners who may not be aware, I mean, I didn't invent deliberative dialogues. I'm just one of a number of practitioners around the country that do it. Um, the National Issues Forum Institute creates issue books around different issues. There's also other um, organizations that practice similar types of deliberations. Um, I think the key is that in any deliberation, you're seeking to reach a public judgment by using critical thinking and listening to opposing views. Um, and so when I do deliberative dialogues, we use issue books that are framed from three perspectives on a particular issue. So it may be immigration, maybe what should go on the internet, it may be what do we do about our budget crisis. And what, what we try to do with those issue books is make sure anybody can pick up the issue book and say, I am represented there, my ideas I see there. Um, and once you do that, then you can have a discussion where nobody feels it's sort of predetermined in the outcome or nobody feels slighted. And that opens up a space for productive conversations. I think one of the things to even kind of go back to your first, uh, first question with people like Ann Coulter, there's a lot of and this is both on the left and the right, we set things up where people are talked at instead of talked with. And once you have people talk with each other, they feel their voice is recognized and their voice is respected. And discussions, events become more civil by nature. Um, Whereas if you have a speaker up on the stage that tells people what they should think, people that disagree with them automatically become defensive. So I think it's about creating a space for having discussions that is respectful of a person's voice, whether you agree with them or not. Thank you. Professor Carson? Well, um, in your question, you say it, it seems more appropriate for conferences and think tanks, classrooms, and meetings, but certainly I think it's a, 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 a good way to uh, conduct conversation within those settings, but I don't think it should be exclusive to that. I think, in, in fact, um, I guess the, the goal of deliberative dialogue is to, is to, uh, to 
infuse that into the community at large. Um, and basically, that's what we were trying to do yesterday with kind of an experiment, and we hope to do some more at the San Marcos Public Library, where we had a cross-section of people, including uh, average citizens and library patrons and uh, uh, police officers. I prefer the term peace officers, but oh well. Uh, yeah, and uh, students and faculty discussing uh, how to reduce violence in our communities. And um, and I think those kinds of conversations are, are at least initially most effective at the local level where you do bring in a cross-section of people and you don't just consider it to be sort of an academic exercise like you would have at a conference or in a class. Uh, and once people kind of... Uh, uh, I mean, I think the um, the reaction to uh, Professor Tice's talk in in the philosophy dialogue class, I mean the uh, um, philosophy class that he spoke to yesterday, uh, the students were, I mean, they were just so engaged, and it was just a a sort of a a third alternative to this kind of binary, uh, uh, I'm right, you're wrong, I'm right, you're wrong, sort of like the Monty Python argument clinic, if anybody's ever watched that. If they haven't, you really ought to tune in. That's, that's a negative example of what you don't want deliberative dialogue to be. But uh, it has uh, uh, extensive uses, and uh, there are some uh, scholars have written books on... Uh, promoting things like citizens' commissions, which would operate sort of like juries where you have a cross-section and you give people, you put, you create a kind of a space and you give them information and respect and they work together and they rise to the occasion. So it could make a huge difference in our political climate, which is very uh, stressed right now, uh, if, if we would try to increase... Uh, these kinds of exchanges outside of academia. Uh, yes, I, I agree. And I, I was there uh, just at the end of the session at the library, and it seemed like everyone was hoping to come back and to do that again, maybe even on a regular, ongoing kind of basis. So I think it was extremely successful. Well, And I think one of the goals is we have our political system, as a political scientist, that's what I tend to study, has become a spectator sport, and the winning side sort of tries to impose its will on the losers. And that means the losers don't take very kindly to the policies of the winners, and the winners approach things with a certain arrogance. Um, and I think what deliberation, if it was broadly used, if we broadly used deliberative dialogues in communities, then citizens could sort of set the boundaries of what types of policies they'd be willing to live with. That would give policymakers guidance as to the types of things that would be acceptable or not acceptable. You know, in a country as complex as this, we never get everything we want. It necessarily involves compromise. But th there are some compromises that are better than others. And there are, everybody has sort of no-go zones where they're unwilling to accept a decision that goes past that point. But we don't have a way to have those conversations. Everything is portrayed as black or white. 
as left or right. And that's one of the reasons when we frame those issue books, we always have at least three perspectives. So it gets people out of that Manichaean mindset. Okay, well, thank you. I think that wraps up our philosophy mix session for today. And we would like to thank Kimberly Clay, our executive producer. She was unable to be with us today. And Professor Craig Hanks, who's the head of the philosophy department, as well as our special guest, Professor Tice and Professor Carson, and Vince Luizzi, who's also a director of the philosophy dialogue series. Um, And that completes our session for today. Next week, the series continues with an investigation of the military. Please come out to contribute to special community dialogues next week at 4.30 p.m. on Wednesday at the San Marcos Public Library. For details on these events, check out the dialogue schedule on the Texas State Philosophy Department website. So many thanks to our guests, and uh, remember to connect with us on Philosophy Mixed on KTSW 89.9, also on our Twitter feed and Instagram and Facebook. Thank you, and we'll see you soon.